0: Turn, if you would, to the Gospel of John, first chapter. We are still in the prologue of this Gospel this morning, but we are moving on from the first five verses. This morning, our text will be chapter 1, verses 6 through 13, where we are introduced to yet another John. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. John chapter 1, beginning at verse 6. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but God. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Lord, we ask this morning that you would attend the reading and preaching of your word with power. Lord, we would see Jesus Christ. And so we ask you to illuminate our minds and our hearts that we would see him. And that seeing him, we would know him. And that knowing him, we would love him. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. What is the most important question in the world today? I think for some it might be, why is there war? And how can we stop war? We see wars and battles and killings, not just in Europe, but in in Asia, in Africa, all throughout the world, what can we do to stop war? That would make the world such a better place. Or perhaps the question might be, what about disease? What can we do about disease? We've learned a lot about how disease can be damaging and disrupting over the last two years. How can we be free from disease? That's an important question as well. Or maybe you might think about human rights. What do we make of human rights? How can we establish a world in which people are all treated with respect and honor? Where there is justice and peace throughout all the earth. For others still, they might think about the environment. What about the environment and hunger in the world? What can we do to make the world a better and safer place to live in? Now each of these questions is an important question. They're they're even each a matter of life and death, but they're not the ultimate question. The ultimate question is a matter of eternal life and death. The ultimate question is, how will you respond to Jesus? Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God who has come into the world, how will you respond to to him. This is what John has in mind through the entirety of his gospel. We'll note again John's theme and his purpose verse at the very end in chapter 20, verse 31. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. And so John began our prologue here by telling us who Jesus Christ is. He is the Word who brings life and light. Now John shifts and he tells us about the testimony of Jesus. And how that presents us now with a choice. Either to reject Jesus and to go our own way. Or to receive Jesus. And to rest upon Him for salvation. This is not the only time that John will present you with this crucial question. But you need to see that he does present it at the very outset of his gospel. You need to listen with open ears and with ready hearts. Because there is no more important issue of life than how you respond to Jesus. John gives us three things to urge you on to answer this ultimate question for yourself. First, he gives us the testimony to the light. Then second, he gives us those who reject the light. And then third, he gives us those who receive the light. The testimony to the light, rejecting the light and receiving the light. Well, let's begin then by looking at verse 6, at the testimony to the light, the true light. There was a man, verse 6 tells us, sent from God, whose name was John. This is another one who is sent from God. We've already been introduced to the eternal word who came into the world. And we will see that the Word not only came, but that the Word was sent. The Word came on a mission. Jesus did not just come to make an appearance, no. He came on a mission. And now we see another one sent from God. His name was John. Now, don't get confused here. Don't confuse this John with the author of our book because the author of our book never refers to himself by name or even in the first person. Throughout the book he will refer to himself as the beloved disciple or the one whom Jesus loved or the one who laid on his breast or something along those lines. It's almost as if, I don't know, John wants to put none of the attention on himself and all of it on Jesus. Well, This is another John. (coughs) We might properly call him John the Witness. But you know, that name never really stuck. So we now call him often John the Baptist, or for us Presbyterians, we'll call him John the Baptizer. Because he does not have a denomination of his own. And so, like the word... John comes with a purpose in mind. He is sent on a mission. And John's purpose was to be a witness. It's clear in his description. Look with me at verse 7. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. His title, his job description, is witness. That's what John tells us. He came as a witness. That's the main purpose of John's life. But he follows that up with his actions. It's not just a title. You know, too often in the work world, someone has a title that bears no relationship to what they do. Someone's a manager and they make no attempt at managing other people. Someone's a construction worker, but they don't seem to ever pick up a hammer. But here, John is a witness, and we are told that he bore witness about the light. That's what he did. He came to bear witness about the light. That's what his action and his life was all about. And the result of all of this was to be that those whom he witnessed to would believe. That's John's purpose for his witness. John had no importance in and of himself, but his job was very important. That's what we see here in verse 8. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. So lest we become enamored with Bible figures rather than the one who wrote the Bible lest we become enamored with God's servants rather than God Himself. Verse 8 reminds us that John, as great as he was, as wonderful as his ministry was, was not the light. He did not come to speak about himself, but about Jesus. One commentator puts it this way. John was only a pointer. Jesus is the point. John sends us to Jesus. Now, because his job was so important, we know this John well. He appears in every gospel near the beginning. He is the first, but not the only witness to Jesus. John throughout this book will give us other witnesses to Jesus and his ministry and his mission. As a matter of fact, these witnesses include the Father himself. They include Jesus, the Son, The Son testifies of Himself. They include the Spirit, all the members of the Trinity. All three persons bear witness to Jesus Christ and His work. But it goes beyond that. Our author tells us that the Scriptures themselves bear witness to Jesus Christ. You could say that the first seminary of the Apostles was to go to the Old Testament and to show where Christ is found in the Old Testament. That's what they did. And they did it so well that they then began to write the books of the New Testament carrying on in that fashion. The scriptures speak of Jesus. And so we can see how important this idea of witnessing is that it takes John and the Father, the Son, the Spirit, and the scriptures. You listen to witnesses don't you? I don't know that I've ever seen a breaking story on local news where they did not have a man with a microphone and a camera in front of him on site giving the report. And, and, and sometimes there's not even really anything to report from the site. And he'll see people walking by randomly and grab them and say, did you see what happened? Come over here and tell us what happened. And you get an eyewitness report, and he'll bring a second person over. And the more eyewitnesses we get, the more we think we know what is going on. Think about even when you go to buy something expensive. What do you do? You go and you ask someone to be a witness about it before you buy that car or that computer or that refrigerator. You say, you have one. Tell me your experience. Give me the eyewitness testimony. Does it work well? What's good? What's bad? What are the pros? What are the cons? And and we don't want just one opinion, do we? We want to get as many as we can, get as many witness testimonies. You know, it's interesting that even in the legal world, what prosecutors find most valuable in prosecuting their case are witnesses. Witnesses. Even though things like DNA testing and fingerprints are far more reliable than the recollection of a witness. It is the testimony of a witness that convinces. That's what we have here. So John is the first and most important witness to Jesus. But he's also much more than that. He is a model to us. We're told that John witnessed that others might believe. And that means that those of you who are here this morning who believe in Jesus Christ have a duty to witness as well. So how do we do that? Well, verse 7 first tells us something that seems obvious but is crucial. Our witness needs to be about Jesus. We need to tell others... About Jesus. Look with me at verse 7. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light. The subject, the content of his witness was Jesus Christ. The light of the world. The eternal word. That's what he testified to. That's what witnessing is. Now I will admit that today it is getting harder and harder in our world to bear that witness. Our culture has become more and more opposed to the witness of who Jesus Christ is. To the authority of Jesus as King of all. To the need for redemption because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But, if you'll forgive me the obvious, no one will hear your witness about Jesus unless you tell them about Jesus. It has to be done. You may have heard Sort of a phrase that goes like this. Preach the gospel at all times. Use words if necessary. Now this is attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, and I am saddened by that because it slanders him. We have no record of him actually having said that, and it's a thoroughly unbiblical concept. It is false. You preach the gospel by using words. That's what Jesus did. That's what Paul did. That's what John is doing. Now, this doesn't mean that you don't live a life in accordance with that gospel, but if you are going to testify to what Jesus has done in your life, brothers and sisters, you need to summon up the courage to tell others about Jesus. We need to tell others who Jesus is, what he has done, and what that means for us. And that means a second obvious thing. That the witness that we bear is not about us. We don't need to say how good we are. Or how well we're doing. Or how in control we are. We don't need to speak of the fruit of the gospel as if it is the gospel. You shouldn't give anyone the impression that what they need to be is more like you. They need To be more like Jesus and believe in Him. Now that is good news for us. Because that means you don't need to be perfect. You don't even need to be ready to give the right witness. You don't need to be an example to everyone around you. All you need to be able to do is to speak about your Savior. Your testimony is not about you. And what you've achieved, it's about Jesus. And what he has done. Now, your actions should not contradict your testimony. But you are not out to convince people how great you are. How wonderful your family is. Or how, how wonderful your life is. You are a pointer. Not the point. And that brings us to our second point. There are those who reject the light. Not everyone will accept the testimony of the witness. John makes this very clear for us. It's as if he couldn't have chosen to be more clear. Here you have this witness who is sent from God. He's not just any old witness. He is sent from God. His mission is to testify to the eternal word. And he is testifying through the true light we see in verse 9. Now, the word here, true, means genuine. That means that as John witnesses to the true light, he doesn't have to try to trick anyone or to convince anyone. There's no con here. He's got the genuine article, the true light. And the true light gives light to everyone. Now, now that does not mean that everyone is enlightened or that everyone believes. That's clear from the text. We see later on that some reject and do not receive the testimony, do not receive the Savior. But what it refers to is the fact that Jesus is God's objective revelation to the whole of the world. He is the only true light. There are no substitutes to be had. As you go and testify to others, you don't need to worry about what kind of light they need based on where they grew up, or what their nationality is, or how old they are. There is only one light, and it is Jesus. Have you ever had to make do with a substitute? With a knockoff? Maybe someone told you it was nearly as good as the real thing. I think you know how that works for me. I've told you this before. With me, it is the saga of Oreo cookies. If you invite me into your home, please do not give me imitation Oreos. I'd rather you give me nothing. I'd rather you give me vegetables. Oreo cookies are the genuine article. They are the real thing. And when I get the imitation, I'm just made sad. Because I realize what I'm lacking. Now, this is even more true in a spiritual sense. Why would you try to find a substitute for Jesus? There's nothing that can substitute for Jesus. All it will do is disappoint you, discourage you. And yet that's exactly what many people do. They go around their whole lives trying to replace Jesus with vacation, with drugs, with money, with fame. They try to fill their God-shaped hole with an imitation. And it can't be done. That's what John tells us. There's only one true light The whole world does not receive this light. John tells us that specifically in verse 10. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Jesus came into the world. This is a world that he had made. John reminds us of that. And yet, they did not know him. They failed to recognize him for who he is, the creator and God himself. How could they do that? How could they fail to recognize Jesus, the Word, their Creator? The answer is, they didn't care. They were more concerned about themselves than about God. Now you can immediately see that this is applicable not just in the days of the New Testament, but in our days as well. Doesn't that describe the world around us? People are more concerned about sports or entertainers or vacations, than they are about God. The true light came into the world, and the world's response was, meh. But this is about more than knowledge. There is rejection language here. And that shows us the real blindness of the world. John told us about the darkness of the world in verse 5, and now he tells us that the world did not receive the true light. He tells us that not only is the world surrounded in darkness, but the world shuts its eyes to close out the light. Look at verse 11. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. The language here is interesting. His own implies possession. Possession knowledge, particular relationship. And so because of that, verse, seven, verse 11 probably refers most likely to the Jews. They are Jesus' own, his own people. They are God's covenant people. He is the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And that's not because the Jews were extraordinarily bad that they rejected Jesus. I think sometimes we have that false assumption. We think that the Jews were especially bad, and especially those Pharisees. They were super rotten, and that's why they didn't receive Jesus. But that's actually the opposite of the truth. The Jews were better than other people. They might have been the best that the world had to offer. They believed that God existed, and that He created all things, They believed that he wrote his word and gave it to them. They believed in his law. As a matter of fact, from the world's perspective, the Pharisees were not the worst. They were the best of the best. If anyone should have received Jesus in the world, it would have been the Pharisees. But what was the result of Jesus coming to his own? It was Rejection, verse 11, they did not receive him. And God had prepared the Jews to receive Jesus. He had prefigured Jesus in all of the ceremonies of the ceremonial law. He had sent prophet after prophet to tell that the Messiah was coming and to keep them on the lookout. He had prepared the way before Jesus through John the Baptist. And still their response was nothing. They rejected Jesus. So what does that tell us? It tells us that darkness is our native condition since the fall. We are all too blind to see. But there's more than that. It's not just that we can't see. It's that we don't want to see. That's important. It's not just ability that's involved here. There's also a lack of desire. And so when we talk about total depravity, that's what we mean. There is no desire for God in man. What a horrible place to be. The true light has come. God has sent witnesses to the light, and yet people, even Jesus' own people, the ones most likely to embrace Him, have rejected Him. They are unwilling and unable to receive the light. So what can we do? Didn't John tell us earlier that the darkness couldn't overcome the light? Well, that's where our third point comes in. Verse 12 starts with a wonderful gospel Bible word. But. Over and over again, when we despair, we come to God's word and we hear, but. But God but God in His mercy, but God in His grace. When we are unable, God is able. It is indeed impossible, we say, but nothing is impossible with God. And so John introduces this very matter-of-factly. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. There are those who do receive Him. It's a fact. That's what John says. And that gets us back to the ultimate question. What do you do with Jesus? Some remain ignorant of Him. And not just that, others are hostile to Him. They want nothing to do with Jesus. They reject Him. But others, John tells us, receive Him and believe. So what does it mean to receive Jesus? It means more than to just acknowledge Jesus, that he exists. This is much more than a passive relationship for us to receive. You might think about it this way. I'm sure there are certain foods that you don't hate, but you don't really care for. And you never would order them off the menu at a restaurant. But if someone handed you a plate and put it on the plate, you would eat it. You'd never ask for it. You could take it or leave it. But remember, mom told me I should clean my plate, so I'll eat it. I could take it or leave it. That's not the way we should look at Jesus. To receive Jesus means to accept him as he is. Your creator. Your redeemer. Your king. There are no halfway measures with Jesus. Jesus. If you are going to receive Jesus, He is going to change your life. You are admitting that you are no longer in control, that you are not your own, that you are bought with a price. Are you ready for that? To submit to Jesus in your marriage, in your family, in your relationships, with respect to your money, with respect to your purpose in life, are you ready to submit to Jesus? as your Savior and King. Because when you do receive Jesus, you are brought into a family. When you believe, you are no longer your own. You are bought with a price, but you are now a part of God's family. Do you see the word here in verse 12? Right. When you believe on Jesus, God can't turn you away you have the right to become a child of God. This is a right that Jesus gives to all who believe. No exceptions, no matter what the circumstances are, no matter what you have done, everyone who receives Jesus has the privileges of the sons and daughters of God. So I hope then you'll ask, what must I do to believe in Jesus? John has told me that the world has rejected Jesus, that they didn't know him. What makes the difference? Is the whole world hostile to Jesus? Now, to understand that, first we must think about the word world. When we think about world, we think about it spatially. We think about the entirety of the land and sea on earth. And we think about maybe all of the people on earth. But John doesn't think of it that way. John thinks of the word world relationally. He thinks about the world as the world system that is contrary to God. That's why John can generalize in verse 10 and say although the world was made through him, the world did not know him. All that is a part of that world system that opposes God will not receive Jesus. The entirety of the world. That makes sense, doesn't it? If the world does not want God, if it rejects God, why would it take the one cent from God? But that means that there are some who are not a part of the world system. There are some who believe. That's what John tells us. And this is the heart of the gospel to have the right to become a child of God does not require that you first be good. John helps us to understand this in verse 13. Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John tells us that the only way to believe is to experience the new birth, to be born. Now, this should help us here. I would ask you to think back to when you were born, but I dare say you won't remember. So think back to watching someone be born. The person who was born, how involved were they in the birth? Well, if you were observant, or if you had a mother like my mother who would tell you that she was involved in all of the pushing and all of the labor, and I was kind of along for the ride. I just was the one who was born. As a matter of fact, the word born is by definition a passive verb. It's something that happens to you. You are born. You aren't borned. You don't born yourself. It makes no sense in language or in logic. And that's what John is saying here. That if we are to believe, we must be born. It must be an action not of ourselves, but of another. It must be something that happens to us. And so John tells us this is found in the new birth. Now we have more details about this birth throughout his gospel, especially in chapter 3, but there's enough here that we can see. He tells us three things about the new birth that in some mean it is not your effort. And this makes sense because that's what being born is. It's not your effort. First he tells us we are born not of blood, That is, you cannot be a child of God by who you are. You're not a child of God because of who your parents are. Or your grandparents. Or your friends. Or your nationality. Or where you grew up or where you live. It doesn't matter who your parents were or your grandparents were. It doesn't matter where you grew up or what your nationality is. That's not how you become a child of God. But then John goes on. It's also not of the will of the flesh, which means that it's not of human choice. And this just makes sense because if we are lost in darkness, ignorant of the true light, how could we choose the light? We're in darkness. In the fall, We were not just made sick, we were dead in sin, lifeless, unable to do anything. We weren't clawing our way back to God. I think sometimes we have a picture of conversion as if we are somehow hanging from a cliff by our fingertips. And we have to, with great strength, pull ourselves up. And maybe we can get some assistance from other people. They'll throw us a rope. But it's our job to pull ourselves up. We've got to do it. If we don't do it, no one will. It's all up to me, we think. And so we go through a whole litany of behaviors and reformations and promises. And over and over again, we fail. But the good news of the gospel is not you do. It's Jesus did. The third thing that John tells us, it was not only not of blood, not only not of the will of the flesh, but it was not of the will of man, but God. And this is important because not only is it not your choice, it's not your initiative either. You didn't initiate the process. I hate to tell you, but you are not the seeker. God is. You're not seeking after God. God is seeking after His children. If you are seeking after God, it's only because God sought you first. It brought you to Himself. But if you see any hopeful signs in your life, and being here in church today and hearing God's Word is one of those hopeful signs, or if you long to pray, or you read God's Word, those hopeful signs are evidence of God's work in you. And you should pursue those and beg that the Lord would do a greater work in you and that He would bring you all the way to His household to be a child of God. Ultimately, it's not what you do at all that matters. It's what God does. God himself undoes the darkness of your heart and he lets the true light shine in. God not only provided Jesus Christ as a savior, he gave you faith and life to receive him. Now this is not just an academic matter. It's not just about listening to an explanation of what an ancient text says. This is the ultimate question of life. What will you do with Jesus? Will you go along with the world around you and continue sleeping in the darkness? Or will you cry out to God and ask Him to save you, to make you His child, to give you a new life through a supernatural new birth so that you can receive Jesus and believe? That is the question that John puts before you today. That is the question that I challenge you with today. What will you do with Jesus? I pray that you will rest upon Him alone for salvation and have the right to be called a child of God. Let's pray.